this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. All right, welcome back to another episode of Friends from Work, a podcast about all things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And it's a podcast hosted by me, Kyle Sconowill, and my longtime friend from work, Robbie Earl. Now, we say all things in the Marvel Cinematic Universe all the time, but I'm not sure we've ever meant it quite as literally as today because it's not every day, if you can see this, that you are joined by the writers of the new book, The Reign of Marvel Studios. Joanna Robinson, the, the profile view also just to <laughs> yeah. show how, yeah, look at those how much we're talking all things <laughs> in the MCU. All things. Joanna, Dave, and Gavin, welcome to Friends from Work. Let's go. Thanks for Thank having us. So Hello. I'm so glad you guys have the finished copies that are so shiny and like got the beautiful end papers, the whole package. They are shiny. I, I should say also my wife, who's a graphic designer, uh, it's not often complimentary of the Marvel related things that I bring into our household, <laughs> but this one was the exception. She made a point to Ooh. talk about how nice the cover is. So Yay. congrats on passing that particular test. I'm just now noticing the Iron Man. I consider yeah. it oh, yeah. a little Let's Easter go. egg. Here's my favorite fact about the cover. I mean, we had a really, really talented designer work on the cover, incredible stuff, but the mm -hmm. core conceptual design for the cover came from Mr. Dave Gonzalez here Ooh. on the call with you, who is also wow. a graphic designer in his other life. So yeah, that was his whole idea. And the, the publisher had pitched us a bunch of different ideas and Dave was like, what about this though? And then we all picked our jaws up off the floor and said, yes, that, that's the one. So I was looking Love at the janky that. Photoshop of it the other day and I was just like, <laughs> you became so much more than this janky Photoshop <laughs> little image. <laughs> But you know, <laughs> that that I think is maybe representative of uh, the Marvel Studios story as well. So that seems fitting. Yeah, best idea wins. <laughs> so I just got this book overnighted to me yesterday. So I'm not finished. Obviously, it's comprehensive. I'm a little ways through it, but everything I'm goes great it. with the MCU until the end, and nobody is ever unhappy. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. There you go. <laughs> Well, I'm loving what I'm reading so far. I guess my first question to you all is why? What drove you to write this comprehensive of a story? Well, I I think above all else, there's a number of different factors, but I think above all else, as 
fans of the MCU, as longtime journalists, as curious people, we just wanted this book to exist, like for ourselves. Essentially, we were Dave and I have been talking back and forth about some. We've known, you know, worked together for I think over a decade now, Dave. Oh my gosh, Um, and have been talking back and forth about some of these stories for years and years and years. And so, um, our publisher Norton approached us in 2019, um, when Endgame came out, when it felt like sort of the capper of a certain era of Marvel Mm -hmm. and said, Hey, what about the Marvel story? What do you, what do you think about that? And Dave and I got really excited to do that. We worked on that for a while and then we were so lucky to find Gavin to come in and help us pull it all together. And Gavin comes with this wealth of knowledge of the comics journalistic experience the that like really fun zippy tone that you that like <laughs> makes the pages turn themselves i think is a phrase gavin was, used the other I day um that's it that's the magic that's the magic yeah, that gavin that's brings gavin. so yeah then <laughs> then it all comes together but gen- like at the bottom of it even though gavin is sort of like new to our fellowship new ish it's been, a, it's been a, a few years but like new ish to our fellowship we all share that love of the MCU, but sort of healthy skepticism and curiosity about who is feeding us these stories. What is the story, the superheroic struggle battle story mm-hmm. behind the story? All of that is really interesting to us. Somebody asked me this morning, like, you know, is the MCU like good or bad or neither? I'm like, it's both. <laughs> <laughs> both ends. You can both like love what it is and say, you know, like recognize that there's flaws in the the edifice. Feels like uh, something you could say about Marvel comics as a whole. Like if, if you're trying to look at to the extent that the MCU is a microcosm for the Marvel story that we've been getting since 61 or before, however you want to look at that. I, I think that it's, if you're a comics fan or, or a critic or someone that's interested in that, I think you, have to learn to kind of hold both of those things. Like I remember when we had Douglas Wolk on the show and we were talking about the old Shang-Chi comics mm-hmm. and he was talking about how that was on the one hand, one of his favorite series to go back and read and how great and gripping it was. And also how clearly problematic a lot of it is. And it feels like that's a really extreme example, but I, I think that there are elements of that anytime you're looking at something that's this sprawling. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah, especially with, uh, you know, sort of the struggle for control between the Marvel Comics entity and the early Marvel Studios entity, where they're like, maybe these are both, but, uh, you know, Ike Perlmutter and uh, his Mm. various comic book people are like, well, actually, these are all things, ways to make money. Like, don't, don't stop thinking of them about revenue streams first. And sort of trying to wrestle that away and starting to think about uh, the audience like a little bit of, you know, EICs for the comics have been doing a lot, but also uh, Mm -hmm. for the movies instead of being like, just let Brian Singer disrespect the property. It had to become like, (laughs) no, let's take the good things from the comic books and uh, bring it it to the movies. We we could talk about Brian Singer. There's that much of him in the book, but that's because Dave kept getting angry. Yeah. So you guys are all already or were experts on the MCU before you wrote this book. But 
in all of your research? Because, I mean, this is you went through and interviewed a ton of actors and writers, directors, all this stuff. Like, in your research, was there one thing or a couple things that particularly stand out to you, something you didn't know or something that really blew your mind, a storyline or a project or something like that? I think um, there's two that strike me sort of right, I guess three, that strike me right away um, as if this had gone any differently or um, we wouldn't have gotten any of these films in the first place. So there's the business story, obviously that, that, you know, first couple chapters are interested in and just the, what still seems to me, the people who made the deal don't think this, but still seems to me to be one of the wildest gambles of all time to sort of leverage uh, several of their, what would become their all-star characters off to get the financing in the first place to launch Marvel Studios. That seems to me highly improbable that that, that ever would have worked in the first place, and yet it did. Then there's Iron Man itself, and Iron Man, we interviewed so many people who worked on the set of Iron Man, and that is just a chaotic set, and the <laughs> fact that they got what they got out of that without without a clear script hammered out in advance with things constantly changing on the fly with this sort of like independent cinema approach to Iron Man it's astonishing to me that exists and then you get to the Hulk chapter and there's the problems with Edward Norton their leading man so just like it it just all seems so rickety at the start and and you look at where they landed and how impenetrable they came for a while but like how how shaky the start I think that's something I didn't fully have a sense of until we dug into it hmm yeah, I think for me, um, as somebody who was covering it more as a fan online when the MCU started, I was always really interested in, like, you know, what's behind the scenes and, you know, like, what are all the Easter eggs in the movie? I was surprised with stuff like like with Wakanda showing up on a map in, like, Iron Man 2. Yes. That's not an mm-hmm. Easter egg. That's them trying to get there. And there's somebody at that point in, uh, you know, the Marvel Creative Committee that's like, you know, these guys aren't going to sell action figures, so, like, you can't do Black Panther, or you can't do Doctor Strange, even though he gets uh, name-dropped in another movie. And uh-huh. it's like, those aren't, those aren't Easter eggs for the fans as much as they were, like, uh, markers for the production being like, no, we are going to nail this into your head until you are begging for a Black Panther movie, and we're going hmm. to show our overlords that the audience is out there. Hmm. And uh, eventually they did. So I, I was... Often surprised, especially in an era where, like, I think Star Wars and Lucasfilm were maybe listening to fan reaction a little bit too much yes. uh, when regard to their future projects. Uh, Marvel seemed to like never really been listening to the fans. They're like, we're gonna go here and we're gonna not offend anybody, but we're gonna go directly towards hmm. these like absolutely weird things. We're gonna bring you the Infinity Stones. We're gonna, you know, bring you uh, eventually like She Hulk as a streaming show. Like all these weird ideas. That when uh, the at the turn of the century superhero movies started coming out uh, seemed like completely out there, and then hmm. I think it was Guardians of the Galaxy hitting as big as it did that started uh, getting people to realize that like we could take the weirdest stuff that we have, and as long mm-hmm. as we have a good creative team behind it, and you know could make it a James Gunn uh, fun space romp, uh, people are going to show up in droves as much as they would for Iron Man or Thor. So I, I love that, though. that uh, Dave and Joanna like were working on this book for years before I joined the project. And so for me, it was just sort of like, you know, like opening the room and is just full of Easter eggs. Like all the questions <laughs> I ever had about Marvel MCU 
they had found answers to like, Hey, are those hmm. like comics like are used in the logo when like they're flipping through the pages? Turns out that they're like originally commissioned for that. I didn't know, you know, sort of why they hmm. changed like uh, Bruce Banner's name to David on the TV show. Turns out it was homophobia. <laughs> so, and one of the big things I'll say, uh, just because Joanna reminded me of it by saying rickety, is the extent to which the Marvel Studios offices were done, like held together by scotch tape, essentially. That there were yeah. literally chairs yeah. and conference rooms that you would sit down on and they would collapse. And so even mm-hmm. after it became this, you know, like billion dollar enterprise, you know, like seeing like the co- high, high contrast between like the money on the screen and the absolute, you know, sort of like Spartan, you know, sort of scuffling by studios and accommodations. Right. So that was really fascinating to me. By the way, speaking of Easter eggs, I I, I love in, your Easter eggs in the book, not only at the beginning of each chapter, quoting something from the movie that sets up the chapter, but uh, there's a chapter where you're like, we came to a screeching halt, like a helicarrier falling from the sky or whatever. So I love that kind of stuff. So that was fun. Good job on the writing there. Classic uh, Gavinism, first of all. Secondly, have you look at, looked at the notes at the back of the book? Uh, nope. I'm a bit I right was now looking talking. at those this morning, actually. <laughs> if you flip through them, them. Yeah. Uh, you it's might find a surprise waiting for you in the notes section. Okay. <laughs> what's what's a Marvel anything without a post credit scene, I guess. <laughs> yeah, there you say. go. There you go. Um, Talking about the the start of the MCU and kind of how uncertain things were, I, it strikes me that there is a bit of a parallel between the MCU in Phase 1 and the MCU in Phase 4 and 5, uh, or, you know, post-in-game, however you want to look at it, even down to the fact that, as as I think you all note in the, in the book, you have something resembling a creative committee come back. Uh, with the, what is it, the Marvel Parliament? Parliament and obviously, yeah. you know, it's it's very different and I think the way it's comprised and imposed. But I wonder, is there anything that, you know, as Phase 4 and 5 were kind of happening in real time, I'm guessing you were, you know, digging back in, in time to the early, mid-2000s. And was there anything that kind of struck you there about some, parallels or maybe like lessons that you're seeing that Marvel learned or is having to relearn? I think what you're identifying is basically it took them years and hard won custody battles with Marvel East Coast, etc. for them to fully hammer out uh, what we some, sometimes call the Marvel method, um, you mm-hmm. know, to, to figure out who to bring in-house, who has final say on certain things, all of that, that that took a really long time for them to figure out, though they figured out certainly faster than DC over Warner Brothers, et cetera, right? <laughs> and so they have this Marvel method that is putting out banger after banger, and then you get this you know, note from their Disney overlords to amp up production. And the question then becomes, uh, and this is something that, you know, within the last year, someone who was there at the very beginning of Marvel said to me on the phone is like, is this method something you can scale up? Can you, is there scalability in the Marvel method in mm. order to go from putting out a couple movies a year to putting out several TV shows and a couple movies a year on top of that? And can a Marvel method that includes a figure like Kevin Feige sort of 
somewhat shadow directing all of these films by saying, hey, bring me the pieces of the movie you're working on back here to California and I'll, I'll help you put this movie together. Well, he can't do that for every single project. And then so then you get the parliament, which is filled with incredibly, incredibly talented, long standing people at Marvel. But they're not Kevin Feige. And, you know, I, I don't I don't want to say he's irreplaceable, but thus far, it seems like he might be kind of irreplaceable. And so hmm. I, I don't see it so much as they're recreating the creative control inside their own halls as they found a method that worked for the output that they were doing. And then all of a sudden they tried to scale it up and then you dilute that power of Feige, that creative juice sure. from Feige across, again, a number of very talented people. And you're mm -hmm. back to that sort of maybe, to your point, too many cooks in the kitchen uh, approach to storytelling where they had streamlined it down to something really slick before. Well, and with the people you've talked with, they must be aware of that now, right? It seems like it's shifting back to a slowdown a little bit. Dave, you want to talk about Bob Iger? <laughs> uh, yeah, that was happening right <laughs> at the end as we were finishing up the book um, because uh, Bob hmm. Iger came back. And we had outlined when it, they entered the streaming era how the transition out of uh, Bob Iger into Bob Chapek for a period of time really uh, upped the production uh, amount that was needed. And then, um, like uh, Kevin Feige is currently trying to save... Uh, Marvel movies he didn't have any control over. Bob Iger had to come back and save Disney from uh, stuff that he set in motion and then didn't really work out. Uh, so it's been interesting in terms of like the parallels between phase one and the new phases that we're in. I can sort of see where we're going, but I think they've also... After Endgame, they cashed their check for trust uh, in the first couple of projects that came out. Uh, it was delayed uh, by the pandemic, which also made it seem like higher stakes. Uh, but uh, we spent a lot of time in Phase 4 being introduced to wildly different corners of the Marvel Cinematic Universe and uh, legacy characters that would eventually, or hopefully will eventually become Avengers. It was a lot different from uh, them setting out at the beginning, being like, okay, we're going to make Iron Man and Hulk, and uh, then we're going to make Thor and Captain America. And if you know anything about the Avengers, you know what we're building towards. <laughs> and each one of those was like each phase. You'd have a movie from each one of the main characters so that it eventually would make a trilogy and you would have a big crossover movie. And it wasn't till it wasn't things like it was only things like Guardians of the Galaxy or like Doctor Strange or like Ant-Man where initially they kept them at a distance. And then once the movies were successful, yeah. they brought them into like the full world. So we're right now in the beginning of phase five, uh, sort of wandering around, having been trained for over a decade to have like this cadence of what to expect and what characters to see. They're just like, no, we're going to throw werewolf by night at you. Blah. Here's some moon night. Nah. And it's like, are you going to see these characters again? I don't know. You want to see these characters again? Meanwhile, Kevin Feige's cooking in his little kitchen being like, here's what I would have changed about the X-Men movies and the, the Spider-Man movies that I didn't have full control over. And like, here's No Way Home. Here's Deadpool 3. So I think it's uh, been an excellent time where they're reclaiming, but again, the sort of uh, wavering fan expectations or the uh, decreasing box offices, I don't know how much that's concerning to them 
Although I think something like Secret Wars, which is like six episodes, two hundred million dollars, that should be concerning. Hopefully, they're paying attention to that. Secret but Invasion. Again, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Secret Invasion. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Secret Wars is going to cost so much more than two hundred million. I did. <laughs> I made exactly that flip flop of that on a on an interview earlier this week. All of a sudden, you're thinking Secret Wars is six parts. Did I miss something? <laughs> I did. You heard it here first from Dave Gonzalez. <laughs> yeah. <a> scoop. <laughs> <laughs> I saw in in reading the book, uh, you know, you you referenced that at the start, you had a lot of cooperation from Disney and that kind of as you went, it seemed like there was a bit more pushback. And I was curious how you first started feeling that if it was subtle or if it was not so subtle and kind of why that happened when it did. Yeah, I am. Um... Disney has a long history, and we knew this going in, of of not wanting people to know exactly how the sausage gets made. You know, they mm-hmm. want their they want their hand in the telling of their story at any given level. And they also, you know, they have publishing wings. They have this, that, and the other thing. They're like, well, if someone's going to write this book, we want to write this book. You know, so they did have their own mm-hmm. version come out somewhere in the middle of our writing process. And that I think that was part of it is they were like, well, we're working on our own thing. Why would we help you with your thing? That book exists. That book is very interesting and it tells a story, but it does not tell mm-hmm. the full story because it tells Disney's version of the story. And, you know, there's a lot of uh, cool glossy photos in there and stuff like that. There's a lot to admire, but we were curious to tell something else, which was, you know, give us the whole story. We're not here to bash Marvel. We're not here to, this is not like muckraking journalism. We're not here to like get all, give you all, all the dirt that ever was. But we were like, well, you're not being fully transparent with all the things that happen. Understandably so. This is more, almost more PR than it is journalism. And that's fine. Um, but so Disney, the way it, you know, I, I'm speaking to this because I was one doing all the interviews at the start. And so I was the one seeing, the emails come back from publicists saying like, well, we heard from Disney that they, you know, Disney never said it to us directly, right? They never, uh, with one exception Uh that I can think of, never said anything to us uh, really directly. It more came through third-party channels and we sort Mm. of said, okay, now we understand what's going on. And so then we needed to get creative. And we were talking about this the other day, just, you know, Every journalist ever sort of trying to tell the story of a of a giant corporation has had to get creative with how they get access to the story that they need. This is just this is just good old fashioned journalism. And so, you know, trying to work around, trying to cajole work sources, we still wound up with, you know, over a hundred interviews and plenty mm. of those directly from, you know, spending a couple hours with Kevin Feige talking to a lot of the actors, you know, we have all of that insight is in there. There's a lot of original interviews and reporting. There's also some people on background, some people who were talking to us because they were like, you won't tell Disney I talked to you. Right. You know, and those stories are in there too. So um, yeah, it, it became an interesting, and I actually, I know this is going to sound like our own PR and spin, but I actually think it made the book better because first of all, that lit a fire under us to be like, Oh, okay. You're going to close some doors. Mm, I don't think so. And secondly, I think then just sort of like digging for those stories. Okay. What is it? Disney 
is afraid for us to know. And again, it's not, we're fans. We're not here to bash Marvel. That's not the point, but okay. Mm -hmm. So what, you know, what are some of the little like inner battles and conflicts and difficult personalities that Disney would rather smooth over and make everything seem like shiny, happy people holding hands and, you know, like what, you know, what actually happened. So, I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm grateful to Disney for making our life much harder, <laughs> but it did make the book better. So that makes, you know, that makes me happy at the end of the day. My final question for you guys is a two-parter. We on our podcast have two kinds of listeners. You know, we're always going to get the diehards and then we have some casual fans. And I'm guessing that this book is going to draw two crowds, the diehard MCU fan that just wants to know everything possible about the whole behind the scenes. And then the just general film fan that maybe isn't as into Marvel, but is intrigued at how this thing became what it became. Uh, what is one thing you hope each one of those parties takes away from this book? Like if a diehard MCU fan reads this book, what do you hope is their lasting takeaway? And same question for someone who's not as into the MCU. My answer for someone who's not as into the MCU is one of my favorite chapters is uh, we uh, write about um, Iron Man and MCU like in China. And, you know, it's this fascinating uh, parallel that, you know, sort of like the rise of MCU happens at the exact same time that the uh, Chinese uh, film market opens up to outside uh, movies and just like getting into like, what are the finances of that and how does it work? And what are the, like, how does the co-production work? And then, you know, sort of like at a certain point when they shut down and they get sort of like, you know, very Disney-like non-answers to, you know, like, why are we doing this? And so for me, like it, uh, the MCU ended up being one of the best ways possible to see what was going on with like, Chinese pop culture, which was not something that I expected, but I think is going to be interesting to anyone, whether they're a fan of Marvel superheroes or not. That's a fascinating answer. Wow. It's mm-hmm. <laughs> a great chapter. Yeah. Yeah. I would say for uh, non-Marvel fans, um, I think it's, or just casual film fans, this book is actually much more about that. Uh, when we were, I would try to, you know, pitch it to my casual in real life friends. And they're like, well, like, do I have to rewatch any like Marvel movies to do? I'm like, no, I don't think you have to watch any of the Marvel movies. Honestly, like you've got, you absorbed enough of it from the monoculture to know what we're talking about, because this is a book that is about the business of making blockbuster movies from an existing IP. This is a, a franchise. This is an examination of franchise, uh, and the biggest one that we've seen, uh, to date. Uh, so that's what I think a non-Marvel fan could take away from this book. If you're a Marvel fan, uh, Joanna and I dealt with this for a while while we were putting together like early outlines, like, you know, who, who is this for? Like, there's going to be people that know a lot of this. Like maybe we have like a couple of pop stories, but like, or big quotes, but like, if you've been following, like we had through the actual production, you've probably heard rumors of a lot of these stories before. Uh, like, what are, what are we doing here and how do we make this, you know, something that like a, a Marvel fan that already knows it all gets something else out of? And the answer to that question was Gavin Edwards because it's just fun to read. <laughs> like, the book yeah. is fun to read. If you know yeah. everything, you haven't seen it presented in this way, you haven't seen certain connections between stories you made sort of be connected across time the way that the book uh, goes... And it's just a fun flow full of those, uh, you know, helicarrier-like language Easter Mm -hmm. eggs uh, Mm -hmm. that will really benefit you more if you, uh, you know, know things about Marvel and MC Scat Cat. I just want to say, like, right back at you, like, for, like, hardcore, like, Marvel fans, the deep, deep research that, like, Dave and Joanna did, like, 
off the top of my head, what happened to Karen Gillan's hair after she shaved it on the <laughs> Being Guardians? And like, oh, gosh. doing the like spade work and find it, like, you know, sort of it got made into a wig. Where is that wig? And, you know, sort of like think that like any, like, you know, sort of like MCU fan who just wants to like really like find out all of the fascinating facts that they didn't even know they were craving. That, you know, like the fact that there's so much of it that spilling out of this book is like Joanna and Dave's like superhuman work. So. Thanks, Gavin. I will say my favorite Gavinism. Did this make it? This made it into the final copy. The side blades in the parking lot line. Yes. That was like that's one of my favorite Gavinisms that he put in there. Um, I uh, to answer your question, and, uh, and Dave is completely correct that I, in particular, I think spent years saying, "Who is this book for, guys?" Um, you know, and the answer that came down, and again, it's going to sound like spin and PR, but for everyone, that there's something for everyone. That was what we finally landed on. And that is the hope. And what I will say about those little nuggets of information is it was my greatest fear that people like you too, who know, who host this podcast and know so much about Marvel already will read this book and say, I already knew all of that guys. Like you're not telling me anything new, but what we have heard from those people who have had a chance to read the book already is there are things they didn't know. There are things that we dug up that they weren't aware of. And that, uh, that thrilled me to my core. Cause like, the, the the my biggest fear is someone's going to throw the book down and be like boring knew it TLDR or something like that and that's not the response we've been getting so that's that's one aspect of it the other thing for the diehard Marvel fan is I hope it introduces sort of like a healthy curiosity about okay these are the stories you love who's telling you these stories I think it's always interesting to ask who's telling me these stories who is presenting me with these heroes why are these the heroes that I am following um you know so when we think about I was talking about I was like ranting at a bookstore about this the other day these stories are so important because mm -hmm. yes they're for all, all ages but they are those of us who grew up with these, we know, particularly formative when you're young. These are stories aimed at young people. And so it is important to know what kind of heroic figure our young people are, you know, thinking about looking at and who decides who's a hero in the eyes of like the next generation coming up. And so when mm. you move out of the era that stars white men named Chris, an era of film that I love, love those Chris's. But then you move into the era where you get a Carol Danvers and you get a T'Challa and you get all these other figures. Learning the story of who decides when that happens, I think is a healthy thing for Marvel fans to know a little bit more about. And then for the non-Marvel fans, I will just say that like what I would like as, as a Marvel fan, as a longtime journalist, how about a little more respect? for the MCU and, <laughs> and what they created in Hollywood and their, mm, and their, mm. their stamp on a decade of filmmaking. Like Preach. I understand the critiques, you know, when Marty, when Marty Scorsese gets, gets one on about the yeah, MCU, sure. I'm like, <laughs> I kind of get it, Marty. I get it. Mm -hmm. Like I too miss, you know, the mid-level adult film if you prefer. But like, I think that um, what they've accomplished the way in which Kevin Feige takes took lessons from old Hollywood studio systems in order to accomplish that makes this a story about, you know, the history of cinema. We're in a different mm -hmm. age, a different golden age, a silver age, if you will, of cinema. And who are the players and what is the information? And years down the line, when they're teaching film history class in university, like right. I'm not saying they're going to use our book, but like there is going to yeah. have to be a section in the textbooks about the reign of Marvel Studios is a part of film yep. history. And so 
Yeah, a, l- a little put a little respect on the MCU's name. It it, yeah. it it was a player for a very long time, and it may yet continue to be. Well, I love it because even if you aren't a fan of the MCU, you're right. Clearly, something resonates with the overall culture, <laughs> whether you like it or not. And so, I, I I'm excited to dive into this more because there's something going on there that you want to know what's right. happening. Like, why does it resonate so deeply with everybody? Well. And to that end, uh, my, my final question, which is maybe a little kitschy, but it's something that we we generally like to ask folks, and I am especially interested to ask y'all. Um, if you had to pick one one project that is not like what you think is objectively the best thing that that Marvel Studios has put out, but one that you just hold very near and dear, like if it's a rainy day and you've got time to kill, you're gonna throw this on, and it's it's like a comfort watch for you. Which project, film or or series, would that be for each of y'all? I just did a full rewatch of like every Loki property because Loki mm-hmm. season two is upon us, and so mm-hmm. uh, I just watched all the Thor movies, the Avengers movies, and Loki season one. Loki season one is just like a real delight, and so I mm-hmm. think in terms of like a comfort watch um, and watching sort of Tom Hiddleston do his thing and Owen Wilson enter the MCU and all of that, Loki season one is a real favorite. But the old school classic favorite for me. Um, is Captain America Winter Soldier. That is my oh, pinnacle yeah. of MCU filmmaking. I love that film so much. So shout out to my favorite white guy named Chris, Chris Evans <laughs> and C. Rogers <laughs> and Captain America Winter Soldier. It matters a lot to me. I think we have the same favorite white guy, Chris. So I'm, yeah. I'm <laughs> with you there. So uh, for me, my like the, my absolute favorite transition from scene to scene in any Marvel movie is when you hear the spinners rubber band man come on in oh. uh, Avengers mm. uh, Infinity, Infinity War. War. Yeah. And just like, and you're like, hey, here come the Guardians. Like, you know, like, even before you cut to outer space, like, you know what's coming. And so there's so much in that movie uh, that like, you know, like, uh, you know, don't make me you're embarrassing me in front of the wizards. Uh, like <laughs> right. for me, like it is like ridiculous that as long as it is and that there's so much going on in it. But if I just want to like take a, like a long warm bath and like all things that are great about the MCU, I think that's the place to go. Gavin's my guy. My <laughs> guy. <laughs> I knew you were going to get Kyle with that one. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so my answer has recently uh, been updated. Cause I was like, what do, what do I actually rewatch? the most out of uh, the MCU because I've, uh, I've been collecting all the discs when they release things on discs. Thanks God. We finally mm-hmm. got Loki and we're going to get WandaVision next month. Yes. Uh, but I would like, I would like all of them on disc because I don't trust digital media uh, to always Preach. be there for me. And I'd like to be back for it. So while I still have access to it, <laughs> I think I watch uh, She-Hulk twerk with Megan Thee Stallion the most uh, of, the, <laughs> of the entire MCU. It's just like, it's exactly what that character needed at that point in her series. And I people hated on it so much. And just the second I saw it, I'm like, that is what Marvel can be now post-Endgame. That that yes. is uh, just like not only is it a great visual effect, but it's not taking itself too seriously. But it's also meeting a very specific uh, audience where it, with something they've never seen before. Uh, so it's very brief. It's a post credit scene, but I rewatch it all the time, just like when I have an extra <laughs> second to remind myself uh, what I'm doing, uh, talking about Marvel all the time. 
you I all are talking to the right guys. Marvel, I quote the most is it's got a why, but not where you think. It's got a, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not where you think. <laughs> One of my favorite characters. Robbie knows Absolutely. Yeah. An icon. Well, the book comes out October 10. Is that correct? October 10 for yes. the public? Yep. So, guys, if you're listening, go get this. The reign of Marvel Studios. Look how good that looks. Yeah. We're, we can do some cross PR. That's also when tickets for the Marvels go on sale. Oh, so oh, hey. Buy the book, buy the tickets for some Marvels. You got a month to read and then go watch the Marvels. I think that's a that's a great way to spend your October. Perfect. Gavin, Joanna, Dave, you guys are absolute legends. Thank you for writing this book and thank you for jumping on this podcast for a little bit. I'm excited to finish it. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for having yeah, us. Thank you for having yeah. us. Such a good time. Great question.